This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with Canada's deadline to go 100% electric vehicle sales. 2035 is the target date to 100% EVs. There will be interim targets along the way. The Justin Trudeau government saying yesterday, Canada must go 100% electric here to combat climate change. The government says it will provide incentives for automakers to build and import enough electric vehicles to meet the demand. If we don't hit these targets, fines. Automakers could be penalized with fines. Uh, That is already raising concerns. This could drive up the cost of new vehicles. I've got Sonder and Fanaretta standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to the Environment Minister here yesterday making this announcement. This is Stephen Guilbeault. The electric vehicle availability standard that drives Canada towards all new light-duty vehicle sales in Canada to be electric or plug-in hybrid by 2035. This includes the interim goals along the way, beginning with 20% of all new vehicle sales be EVs by 2026. Okay, BC already has a head start here. We got more than 20% EVs right now. Let's discuss it with my guest, Sondarin Fanaretta. Sondarin is an auto industry analyst. Cars with Sondarin on TikTok. That's his handle there. He's got over 400,000 likes on TikTok. Sondarin, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Sandra, and you've got your finger on the pulse of this auto market in Canada. 100% electric vehicle sales by 2035. What do you think of this target? Is this realistic? Is this fantasy land? What do you think? Yeah, look, I think uh, I think that the government has a lot of challenges on the way to actually achieving such a target. Um, you know, you think of the price of EVs being one. Interest rates yeah. have recently have skyrocketed compounding on that total cost of ownership to actually pick up an EV, a zero emission vehicle. Public infrastructure, which is another huge aspect, and I'd even argue, especially in BC, is now, you know, zoning has changed around residential units now having uh, fourplexes and more. So how does charging work in these type of living conditions and multifamily living settings? Um, Charging at home is another issue. Climate is another issue. So there's a whole bunch of obstacles the government has and, you know, they're putting out regulations to, you know, incentivize, but also penalize um, auto manufacturers to hit these pieces. And then the, the other aspect, again, is while other countries may have gone ahead and opted in with this as well, you know, in the south of the border in the United States, they don't necessarily have the same climate challenges in terms of battery technology and how it withstands Canadian climate versus the U.S. So mm. there's a lot of interesting dynamics here at play, Mike, but it is definitely very, very aggressive, I think. And, you know, we'll see if some of those goals actually yeah. come out to play. Yeah, there's but there's a lot of moving parts there that you just ran down. Let's listen again to the environment minister here. He talks about one of the points you just raised. Now, 
electric vehicles right now, these vehicles can be very expensive. Here's Stephen Gilbo on this point. He says, look, the price of these EVs will come down. Have a listen. EVs are quickly reaching cost parity with their gas-powered alternatives. As new model of electric sedans, trucks, SUVs, crossover, and more keep coming on the market. Almost all industry projections show that by the end of the decades, the decade at the latest, the purchase price of gas-powered and electric cars will be about the same. Okay, so he says EVs will cost the same as a gas-powered vehicle. Sondran, are you buying what he's selling here? Do you think that will happen? I think that will happen. The, the, the actual question is, at what point will that happen? Not only the price, but again, market demand is based on meeting the customer's needs, right? So not only does the price need to be there, but is the technology, is the battery technology going to be efficient enough to say anybody in Canada will not have that range anxiety or maybe consider a hybrid vehicle or still a gasoline vehicle? And these standards explicitly say they have to be zero emissions vehicle sales. So kind of the hybrid option is not even accounted for in this case. Um, Plug-in hybrids do get a a little bit of the credit, but not fully. Um, And and so that's the thing, right? We think of 2035, that's not that far away. That's not that far away. And we have some significant challenges to get there. Pricing is absolutely one of them. Speaking to Sondra and Fanaretta, auto industry analyst, uh, cars with Sondra and on TikTok. One of, one of the things that is really raising a lot of questions is the lack of a charging station infrastructure in Canada. We don't have enough of these EV charging stations and where are they going to come from? Have a listen to Brian Kingston here. He's with the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association saying, well, hang on a sec. We don't have enough of these charging stations here. Will we have enough in the future? Have a listen to what he says here, then I'll get your thoughts. There's only 345,000 electric vehicles on the roads today. That is not enough volume to make a charging station a profitable business. Yeah, so he says, look, we just haven't reached the critical mass on this market here now to make it viable to create all these charging stations. But that would change over time, though, wouldn't it, Sondran? Like, if we get more electric vehicles on the road, the government's got incentives here to get these charging stations built. It will it will happen, I imagine, would it? What do you think? I, I think it will happen. It will yeah. happen over time. But I think there's a nuance here. It's not only that the charging stations actually get in place. Mike, I have a few charging stations around me. But if you ask me how many of them actually work, that's one question. Mm. One. Two is around the manufacturer's claims on how quickly I can charge my vehicle at these charging stations. There's different levels of chargers depending on what your vehicle can accept. And also, how does that actually play out in real world climate conditions that we're dealing with today? And so there's these different nuances when we think about just charging infrastructure. There's a whole other aspect of it that you also need to consider. And so that's why I think while the government is talking about building all of these pieces, and I believe they will slowly work towards that, there is a lot to uncover underneath the kind of the surface level that you really need to understand because that's going to impact customers. That's going to impact the decision on whether they should buy an EV vehicle or not. Right. And speaking of those decision points there on whether to go EV, I, I already hear from a ton of people who live in the north or the interior or other sort of frigid climates in British Columbia. I mean, if you're living in Vancouver where the temperatures don't get too cold even through the winter and maybe you're just doing a, fu- a few runs run around town and you don't need to go long distances. I mean, an EV is maybe a lot more practical for you 
than someone living in the north of British Columbia and has got to drive long distances for work. Like, what would you say about that that range anxiety? I mean, the the range of these vehicles is getting better, right? I mean, it is improving. It definitely is improving. And I think yeah. you're right. For a specific subset of customers out in the market, you know, they have that use case. The, an EV today will meet their needs. But yeah. I think if you look at the bulk of the market and they're thinking about, you know, what is the type of range do I actually need? You know, I can even give you my own personal story, Mike, and not sure. specifically to one manufacturer or another. I had a Tesla. We just went up north three hours and, you know, overnight it was cold. I think it was about negative 17 degrees. I woke up the next day, it was dead, and I had to push oh. it to a charger. So it's it's stuff like this that, you know, I think battery technology, as it improves, there's a step change that'll need to happen. And that's going to come with a new battery technology that a lot of manufacturers are working on, which is solid state batteries. That's going to probably look to come in 2027 and beyond. But until we get there and we actually see proven cost-effective manufacturing by these manufacturers to put them into vehicles that are priced correctly that the market can absolutely absorb, then you will see us actually start getting close to any of these targets. But there, th that's a lot of question marks on that plan to get how, there. How old is, was that, is that uh, Tesla that you have that wouldn't start for you after being out in the cold all night? Is that an older Tesla? It is. That was an older Tesla, about 190,000 okay. kilometers. But that's another thing that people are thinking about is not only you have degradation due to the climate, but you have degradation of the battery due to age. And yeah. those change by the different manufacturers. I'd say Tesla's probably on the better end of managing that with their batteries, but other manufacturers as well, it's inconsistent. And so those are other things that buyers are looking at when they're evaluating a purchase decision. You know, They're thinking about all of these things as they should be. Sondra, and thank you for coming on with your analysis today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Talk about the rising rates of violent crime, especially incidents of violent shoplifting in British Columbia. B.C. business owners and local communities saying enough is enough here. They are calling for government action on this file. The Save Our Streets Coalition. Yeah, the acronym there is appropriate. They are sending out an SOS calling on government to step up and keep people safe here in BC. I've got Clint Malman and Tanya Finley standing by to discuss. Members of the coalition, have a listen first to this report. Global News reporter Elisa Thibault here. You'll also hear from the Premier, David Eby. Earlier this year, more than 200 people were arrested during a police crackdown on shoplifting. 47 of those were repeat offenders. I share the frustration of these businesses. I share the frustration of British Columbians uh, when uh, people who are involved in a cycle of violence or repeat offenses are released again and again. Yeah, the, the revolving door justice system we have is a big part of the problem here. Okay, let's talk to some of the leaders of the Save Our Streets Coalition now. Clint Malman on the line. Clint is the president of London Drugs, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Clint, thank you for coming on. 
thanks for having us to speak to this important issue, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Tanya Finley is also on the line. Tanya is an, a restaurant owner in Nelson. She is with the Nelson Neighborhood Network. Tanya, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having us here, Mike. Yeah, thank you to both of you. Tanya, let me go to you first here. Tell me about the situation in, in Nelson and what you're seeing there and some of the problems, because I think there's a perception there's a big city problem, right? But we're seeing a, a lot of this everywhere, right? Your thoughts? Yeah, so I represent uh, the Kootenai Boundary, and uh, my business is located in Nelson, B.C., and we are seeing the problem that everyone else is seeing. We are seeing um, crime rates rising. We're seeing more and more homeless people. We're seeing tents and garbage, um, drugs, paraphernalia, all littered around our communities. Uh, we're seeing people not calling the police anymore. They've just kind of given up and accepted that this is the way it's going to be. Um, businesses and job providers are no longer even making claims to the insurance company because they're, they'll be uninsurable if they do. We're seeing doors closing. Um, I just pulled some freedom and of information from the police, fire and ambulance. And unfortunately, I've asked the ambulance twice and have been unable to get how many calls they are. We're not getting any response. But the fire department here uh, just sent me five pages with 50 calls or more on each page. And the police, I'm still waiting. They um, are inactive. And there's I know they had 4,000 calls. Um, and my request was put out on November 28th of this year. Okay, well, I'm glad to see you making putting pressure on government here for for sure. And and Clint Mullman, Clint is the president of London Drugs, one of the biggest, most successful retail chains in our province. And and Clint, can you talk a little bit about how you, you've pointed out that this is not just a Vancouver problem? People may be familiar with some of the problems at the big London Drugs outlets in Vancouver, but are you seeing this at London Drugs stores uh, in other parts of the province too? Absolutely. As Tanya said, that this is not only a pan-provincial problem, but it's a national problem. The concerns that we have are seen, whether it be in northern BC, Prince George, Duncan, Victoria, Nanaimo, and I could go on and on. It's exactly the same issues. And in fact, you, there's an argument that it probably has a disproportionate impact on some of the smaller cities in our province and in our nation because of the resourcing that's that's at. And it's at a crisis point, and we need the governments at all levels to understand that they're behind the street on this issue, and citizens are demanding change. Can you talk a little bit, Clint, about what you're seeing in your London drug stores? Because there have been some really disturbing uh, surveillance videos that have been released um, showing some of the mayhem in some of these stores. Can you tell me some of those stories? Like, what are your, what are your people telling you? Yeah, yeah, sadly, it's not unique to London Drugs, and every major retailer, minor retailer, has similar stories. But we see uh, people that commit repeated crimes of violence, and that's our number one concern as a coalition, is the violence and vandalism against people. It's not only a physical assault, but a mental health issue. So the, yeah. we're talking things like cleavers, knives, uh, guns suggested that they have or produced, bear spray, um, and it goes on and on where people are physically assaulted, attacked, or there's a, a perceived threat due to that person, or they're seeing violent crimes or um, incredibly um, disrespectful behavior happen in front of them. And, of course, that leaves a lasting impression, whether it's a violence issue or, or what have you. But, I mean, sadly, I never thought, uh, and it's, I still, when I say these words, I can't believe I have to say it, that our teams are suggesting that we have to equip our people with stab vests because in, in some of our locations, not just the lower mainland, 
Our internal stats often surprise people. The second highest crime incident in, in London drugs is in our Carisdale store. And I think that blows people away when they perceive that crime is somewhere else. And yeah. that's what I think what's also got the citizens so um, incredibly engaged on this. It's not just business. They want to feel safe in their streets. And they demand that that's one of the core responsibilities of every government, whether it be federal, provincial, or municipal, and they're demanding change and action on this. Yeah, it's a pretty sad state of affairs if you have to wear stab-proof vests to work. And let's check in with Tanya Finley again in, in Nelson. Tanya, are you seeing, are you seeing similar incidents there in, in Nelson? Uh, what we're seeing is that Nelson is definitely taking the brunt for the Kootenays, Cranbrook as well, um, Trail as well. The people, the the places in the communities that have the services, these band-aids and blankets that um, the government in each level is putting into our communities are definitely taking the brunt. Staff are, don't feel safe going to work. People are not heading downtown anymore. They've just given up. They've they've lost hope. Yeah, and you heard Clint describe there with drug addiction. We've got untreated mental illness on the streets. Is that what's driving this, do you think? I mean, do you see a lot of drug use? Do you see a lot of people who are obviously in mental Ill, mental distress on the streets there in Nelson? Yeah, I think the drugs have changed over the years, in my opinion. I also see yeah. uh, the, there's, there's more gang-related activities. We have drug paraphernalia everywhere. I just think there's just no consequences. There's no accountability. And the laws that we have, both provincially, federally, and sometimes even municipalities all across the province um, just aren't being held accountable. There's, it's just, it's nonsense. And uh, we need yeah. to bring back safety, security, accountability. Our communities need to have their lives back. This isn't the way we should be yeah. living. Speaking of Tanya Finley and Clint Malman from the SOS Coalition, Save Our Streets. Tanya is a restaurant owner in Nelson. Clint is the president of London Drugs. Clint, it's it's disturbing to think that uh, some some stores could be shut down. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, is it possible that some London drugs locations could be shut down because of this? Well, it certainly would be the very last thing we do. We exhaust all potential options before, and any retailer would be in that same situation. But it has to be a consideration. It's costing um, people their their confidence. It's, as Tanya said, it's costing downtowns. Um, millions to protect them, police resources. You know, Michael, Tanya said something that's really important, which is, I think, is it's the accountability issue. Regardless of the source, violence against another person is not acceptable. And we constantly hear from the people that we catch that they will literally say, there's no consequences. Let me give you a stat yeah. and an example. Sure. Using the Stats Canada 2022 versus the same period in 2018, there were 6.5 more incidents of crime reported in that time frame, yet there was 10.6 fewer pre people charged in Canada. And oh. that speaks to that. And we hear that, that, you know, you saw, say, for example, in Victoria, in one of the boost and bust it, that the police initiated there, there was, of the people of 109 arrests, there was 1,003 had previous criminal convictions, and 186 of those had violent offenses. And just to put it in perspective, so just the other day in, in Vancouver, we had a person at 7 p.m., they had stole over $200 in lipstick. Fortunately, they were not aggressive when they were stopped. The police attended they released her without charges because she was cooperating. 
at 9 p.m., she showed up at a store a few blocks away, grabbed another $200 in AirPod cases off our shelf right in front of the staff because she knew there was going to be no consequences. And so the staff wow. were sitting there just going, this is insanity. It's every, what we worry about as a coalition, every single incident of theft or vandalism is an opportunity for violence to be committed. And that's not okay. We need governments to act now in a coordinated, systematic way, which we know they can. The SOS coalition is nonpartisan, will work with any government of any political stripe. And we know we saw it during the, the pandemic. They can drop their political agendas very quickly for the benefit of Canadians. And we're asking yeah. them to take that same concentrated people first approach now. Hey, Clint, let me ask you real quickly. When you have a situation like that with uh, shoplifters, repeat shoplifters, you got threats of violence, how do you instruct your staff at London Drugs to deal with that? Like, do you tell them not to intervene because it could be dangerous? Do you have security guards in London Drugs these days? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. First of all, it's a, we spend a lot of energy on nonviolent approaches. So we have yeah. something called MOAB, or Management of Aggressive Behavior Training, that we provide our staff. We have very sophisticated, uh, high-definition security cameras in the store. So sometimes the best way to protect our staff is with after-the-fact charges, like that person I just described, our video. So you imagine our loss prevention officers doing that over and over again, but we'll present a case to the police and they'll go arrest them outside the store to prevent the violence. But some of this is just random. You know, an, an innocent staff person going up, doing what retailers do best, which is offer assistance to a customer, and there's a violent incident that they didn't know the person may have been in the progress of stealing something and bear sprays them, threatens them with a cleaver or something like that. So we do everything we can. And I can tell you that whether it be London Drugs or many retailers go over and above to make sure that there's no violence in front of customers. Sometimes our loss prevention officers who are licensed and trained have to arrest a person because the crime is either so dramatic or we know that they are have, you know, if we know they have a potential for violence, we'll phone the police and follow their guidance. But the whole goal is to make sure that there's no violence. Okay, I want to thank both of you for coming on. Uh, I support your coalition for sure. I love how you're speaking out, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. All right. Let's talk about the latest challenges now for British Columbia's killer whales. These animals are beautiful, iconic, and emblematic of our province. But, of course, we all know the challenges that they face, especially for the southern resident orcas in our waters. Brand new study that took a look at those resident whales and also Biggs killer whales as well. The study just published in Scientific Report. Uh, study has detected oil emissions and wildfire smoke has been found in the tissue of the animals that were tested. Let's discuss one of the lead researchers here, Dr. Juan Jose Alava, Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at UBC, Principal Investigator, Ocean Pollution Research Unit. Juan, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for inviting me. My yeah, pleasure. You're you're welcome. Thanks a lot. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what's the difference between the southern resident killer whales and, and the and the bigs killer whale? 
Well, these are the two kinds of ecotypes. That means that there are two kinds of ecological type of orcas. The southern residents are specialized, for example, in eating only fish like the Pacific salmon. And among yeah. them, the largest Pacific salmon, the Chinook salmon. Also, they have a unique kind of language, dialect. And genetically, they are also different from the big skiller whale, which are marine mammal eaters. They only eat marine mammals, right? Like baleen whale, like stellar sea lion, like harbor seals, and other kind of uh, small dolphins like harbor porpoises or Pacific white-sided dolphins. Also, they have a different kind of distribution. So the southern residents are more like uh, roaming around our urban waters and the three of Georgia. They can go a little bit far away, but the transient are more mobile. They are found from southeast southeast coast of Alaska to Monterey. So these are two populations that have been separa separated over thousands of years, right? So they have different genetic makeup and also different language dialect and the foraging ecology. I mean, what they eat is different as well. Oh, okay, that's really interesting. So we've got the resident orcas and we've got these transient whales as well. And as I understand, your research looked at samples from both, right? So let's talk about let's talk about that. What did you find there when you sampled the tissue of these animals? Wildfire smoke? Wow, how does that get into a whale? Well, well, uh, it's it's inferred that was inferred based on the hydrocarbons, and hydrocarbons are chemical compounds that are found in coal and oil and fossil fuels, and also uh, generated by the combustion of biomass of plants or vegetation. And our best explanation to find, for example, this uh, uh, hydrocarbon linked to pyrogenic sources. Pyrogenic means fire, flying, originated from flame. That's pyros. So it's more related to combustion of vegetation or organic matter. And one of the explanations might be all these wildfires that have been taking place in the last five, six years here in BC. And that was more uh, more, more dominant in the big skiller world, which are more mobile and they are more frequent, frequently observed in remote areas, while the southern residents were more exposed to what we call petrogenic uh, sources. Petro means coming from petroleum, oil, basically, right? So that's basically yeah. two fingerprinting, fingerprints uh, in terms of the exposure to hydrocarbon pollution that basically is coming from fossil fuel use, right? How do you how do you anal how do you get the samples from these animals here? I'm just taking a look at your research here, and you analyze muscle and liver samples from six whales. How do you do that? How do you obtain those yeah. samples? Yeah, we're in total we're twelve individual six southern resident and six big skiller whales. All these individuals were stranded uh, animals, most of them already dead. Uh, that washed ashore mainly in the west coast of Vancouver Island and in some sites in the state of Georgia and further north. And BC, and basically, this was part of a long-term collaboration uh, with Dr. Stephen Roberty from the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food, and Paul Cottrell from Fisheries and Ocean Canada and Marine Mammal Response. So basically, they have an archive, they have a bank of samples that have been collected from since 2006 and even before. So we use, we have access to this uh, opportunistic. Uh, a bank of tissues that were collected from individuals that unfortunately were founded due to collision or to strike with boats or, or ships 
Other individuals mm. die because of disease pathology or emerging infectious diseases as reported by Dr. Stephen Raberty or other anthropogenic causes or, or natural death. So that's, that was la, the, the, the idea to really capitalize in the use of this sample to really understand what kind of pollutants, because we know environmental contaminants are one of these uh, environmental anthropogenic stressors that are affecting mainly the southern residents in addition to noise or acoustic pollution and also the lack of quantity and quality of Chinook salmon for the southern residents. Okay, what does this mean now for these animals here that you've detected these hydrocarbons in these tissue samples here? Uh, this is toxic for the whales, right? Like what kind of impact does that have on their, their health? Yes, based in the weight of evidence, when I said the weight of evidence, basically in the best available information, the toxicity in other studies, for example, based in the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989 in Alaska, and also the deep water horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, you remember over a decade ago, there is a series of studies, long-term studies that demonstrate that there are several toxic effects that can impair the health of, of marine mammal. Among them, for example, can affect the reproductive success and also cause fetal distress and also can impair the response to stress. And that affects what we call the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. Also can cause bronchopneumonia, right? And also there are immunotoxic. That means that can affect the immune system, like for example, the dysfunction of T cells or white cell and also cause liver damage and also decrease the body mass. So there is a series of different kind of health endpoints that are affected by the exposure to this contaminant that not only can be via the diet, but can be also yeah. because of the inhalation of the fume, inhalation of particulate matter or smoke that contain toxic hydrocarbons. Yes. Okay. Okay. Dr. Oliva, thank you for talking about your research today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.